0: welcome to a very special edition of our Writer's Live series. You can see I'm getting a little ka-plump, because we are delighted to have Mr. Hill Harper back to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Now for nine seasons, we knew Mr. Harper as Crime Scene Investigator Dr. Sheldon Hawks on CSI New York. He personally was responsible for quite a bit of interest in CSI work taking place. He also won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series for three consecutive years, 2008 to 2010. But there might be a few things about Mr. Harper that you didn't know. He's an alumnus of Harvard University having earned both a master's of public administration and a law degree. Did I hear a wow? (laughs) He's also a cancer survivor, and he started Manifest Your Destiny Foundation to encourage and enable at-risk youth to succeed. The Manifest Manifest Your Destiny Foundation believes that all students are college material, and that the high school dropout epidemic is one of the most pressing issues we face in our society. His foundation provides students, and parents, and caregivers with mentoring, educational support, and motivation throughout the high school career. He's also, as you know, and that's why we're here tonight, the New York Times best-selling author of five books. Now, his new book that i will talk about tonight, Letters to an Incarcerated Brother, Encouragement, Hope, and Healing for Inmates and Their Loved Ones, talks about his mission to fight the problem of hyper-incarceration in America, which primarily affects young people of color, and especially young men. He hopes to give, he hopes to give hope in facing hurdles and encourages everyone to provide them with the tools. So please join me in welcoming one of our favorite authors, Mr. Hill Harper. Thank. I have to say this, he said give me a hug, it's like oh I guess I will.
1: Thank you so, oh please. I haven't spoken yet so don't stand up yet because you'll be like mm-mm. First of all, thank you. You know Baltimore is one of my favorite cities uh, in the world because of the energy of the people here and also the potential of this city. This city has so much potential. And I, I, just, I just love it, and, and I've spent a number of days here, and I'm awed by it. And, and this is, to me, this library is the, my favorite. This is the most beautiful library. You guys have a gem here, and it is spectacular. And I just found out that there about to do a renovation and I told him don't throw anything out before you talk to me first because there's some stuff in here I want you know it's 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 spectacular so um, I want to talk to you about what I consider to be the most pressing issue of our time right now and as I kind of lay the the groundwork for it I want to lay out some data just so you understand what we're talking about in terms of this hype. People call it a mass incarceration crisis. I call it a hyperincarceration incarceration crisis. Um, I just want to just give you a few data points just so you can start to wrap your head around the bigger systemic problem, and then we can talk about what this book represents. Um, systemically speaking, United States of America today, as a country, we lock up six to ten times more people in our country than any industrialized nation in the world. Um, China has a population four times greater than the United States, yet we lock up a significant amount more people than them. In fact, if you add up all the inmates in Russia and China combined, they would not exceed the number of inmates in the United States of America. We are 5% of the world's population, but we lock up 25% of the world's incarcerated population. We have more black men in prison today than slaves than, than, than there were slaves in 1860. We have 1.7 million children growing up with a parent who is incarcerated. We have 2.4 million people who are actively incarcerated right now, but yet 8 million people who have in some way either been through the system on probation and or parole. What we have in this country, prisons are the number one federal public housing program in the country. Between 1990 and 2000, in the, that 10-year period, $17 billion was cut from the federal budget in building public housing, a 67% reduction over that, over that 10-year period. Over that same 10-year period, $19 billion were added to the prison budget in terms of prison funding and spending, in terms of building prisons, 167% increase. From over the last 30 years since the so-called war on drugs began, we've seen our prison population explode from 300,000 individuals to about 2.4 million. At the same time, we've seen drastic reductions in spending for early childhood education and public schooling. All of these things are completely related because in almost every city across the country, I hate to tell you, Baltimore City school system has a nearly 70% failure rate in terms of graduation of black males in the school system. But you know what your incarceration rate is of young black males? Right about 70%. Those, the, the fact that you could lay that, the dropout graph over the incarceration graph and it would almost be one-to-one is not surprising. You can do that city by city, my city, Black and Latino young men, 65% dropout rate, incarceration rate somewhere around 67%. So these two things are inextricably linked. And the more money we pull out of early childhood education and pull out of our public schools and pull arts funding and all of these other things that can be transformative, we see the flip side or the end result of that pipeline in our prison population. So I wanted that to kind of lay the groundwork. Uh, One of the best books out written on this subject is Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Her book is about the systemic issues. And if you think about this book, my book, you would consider my book to be the mirror image or the reverse of hers. Hers is about top down, the systemic. Mine is about the individual bottom up. Folks Folks who are already in a system. And it's also a book that I... Many of us are in prisons not made of iron bars that I hope this book will help set free. In other words, this book isn't just for folks who are in physical, literal prisons. It's if you're in a if you're in a prison of a job that you feel stuck in, if you're in prison of debt that you feel stuck in, or or, or relationships and all these different types of metaphorical prisons or mental prisons, these are ideas that came from in large part from my interaction with individuals who are physically incarcerated and ideas and methodologies about how to break free from those things am I making sense? You all are a little quiet. Yes. Okay, good. Just checking. I just want to make sure you're there. Um, let me begin by reading to you what I consider to be the reason this book ultimately got made. It happens to be the first letter that's in the book. I scanned it. It's, this is the exact letter how it came to me with the folds and the ripples and the discoloration. And I'll paint the picture for you. In my office, my assistant will take any kind of mail that comes in the office, fan mail, etc. Usually it's a picture or something that needs to be signed or something that somebody wants signed or card. And she'll put it into a packet. And I'm I'm on the road a lot, so I'm on planes a lot. And so I usually use some of the plane time to take the packet out, do the signatures, do all that stuff, stick it back in the envelope, and it goes back to my uh, assistant. And it just so happens this particular day I was flying it's about seven years ago, and uh, I pull out, sign a picture, whatever it is, and I pull out this, this, this letter here, and I'm going to read you the letter exactly how it's written in it, and I hope, that, I hope that you'll get the book, and you'll take a look at the letter, and you'll actually see the way it's written, and I'll talk about that as soon as I finish reading it, but I'm sitting on this plane... And I read, "Dear, Hill Harper. My name is Brian. I'm 16 years old, and I'm in jail. I can't use a computer, so I can't email you. I wrote these to someplace in New York, and I hope and pray the facts, these letters to you are give it to you some way, because I really want to talk to you about a lot of stuff, Hill. I just finished reading your book, Letters to a Young Brother. It was the best book I ever read in my life, and I mean that. So if Penguin Inc. give you these letters, I would like to have your home address so we can correspond back and forth to each other. Like you said in your book, many young people don't have a role model. I didn't have one. That's why I'm in jail. But I have one now, and his name is Hill Harper. I really hope Penguin Inc. give you these letters first class. And if you do get it, can you please write me back? I read in your book that you play in CSI New York. I like that show, and I also like CSI Miami, but I do like your show a little better. <laughs> and I also read you went to school with Barack Obama. If you can tell him I said hello. If I was at home, I'd vote in president. If I was older, I'm only 16 years old, and I'll tell you why I'm in jail and how much time I have if you write me back or even if you get my letter, which I hope you do. Well that's everything. For right now, hope you write back your friend and brother Brian. So I got this letter, and, and I'm just going to be very honest with you. Tears started rolling down my face as I read it, and I think that the woman who was sitting on the plane next door to me got real nervous because she was like, is this guy going to do something crazy on the plane? But tears were rolling down my face for a multitude of reasons. One, number one, the vulnerability this young man expresses in this letter. You're talking about someone who's in a situation, because, you know, I don't know how many of you actually work or spend time in, in prisons and facilities of incarceration. Uh, you put, most people inside put up a lot of walls, and they're not even, they, they can't and don't, for their own protection, allow themselves to be vulnerable in whatever way. And the level of vulnerability he puts in these pages Beyond the fact that he's sending it out like almost putting a letter in a bottle, sending it out to the ocean. He didn't know where he was even sending this. He sent it to some address in New York, which is the only address of the book company on the back of the book, saying, I hope you get my letter. And even if you do, will you please write me back? It's someone reaching out saying, I just need your help, somebody's help. You're the only person I can think of right now because I read your book. Just help me. Help me. And then if you want to be more reductive and break it down more, when you look at the letter, you'll see that it's written at about a fourth grade level. But he's 16 years old. He spells New York with a Y. He he says that's all for right now. He spelled that W-R-I-T-E. I said to myself, how long must it have taken him to read my book at a fourth grade reading level? And then you say to yourself, well, did Brian fail us or did his school system fail him? Brian and I are good friends now. Speak on a frequent basis. He's actually tighter with my assistant Stephanie than he is with me. I think he enjoys talking to her more. But this began, this letter began a steady stream of letters and book reports that started coming into my office. Stacks and stacks and stacks. Why did the book reports start coming? Because unbeknownst to me, judges and juvenile court officials were assigning my first two books, Letters Young Brother, Letters Young Sister to folks, young people, when they were sentencing them, saying part of your sentence is you must write a book report. And then they would send me the book reports. And so I have stacks and stacks of book reports from young incarcerated young men and women from across this country writing a report about my first two books. And I have letters like this one saying I need help. Please. And so... Because of those, I wanted to do something. And I didn't know exactly what I could do, how I fit, and where it would work. But this 400-page book was born out of that. And let me tell you something about this book. This book was most... And I'm just going to be very candid with you. After writing four New York Times best-selling books, my publishing company had the audacity to tell me they would not publish this book. The level of institutional racism... And stereotyping that although I'd had a proven track record as an author, when I told them I wanted to write a book about this subject matter, they told me, number one, my community would not support it. Number two, I'm writing a book for a population that doesn't read. Number three, they are a for-profit corporation. They do not do charity books. They said, why don't you write a conversation two, part two? They said, you know, you, we, when we signed you to your book deal, we did not anticipate that you would say this is the book you want to do. So, so for us to publish this book, you have to rework your deal and take a severe pay cut. And I don't think they anticipated me saying, okay. So I said, okay. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it, get, it gets better. It gets better. So I delivered my book, this book. In my contract, if you understand book contracts, they, they put approximate word counts in the contract. In my contract, the approximate word count for my books, because my other ones had averaged around 60,000 words, give or take, they'd put 60,000 words, I delivered a book that was about 120,000 words. I got an email 32 minutes after I submitted the book telling me that they rejected the book based off length. And that it was a breach of my contract. Because the length, 60,000. And my book was unacceptable. This book is 400 pages for a reason. Because the issue was so big, and I realized that as hard as it was for me to get this published, even given the platform I had, it wasn't going to be easy for anybody else to get a book published like this. That being the case, I insisted that most of it stay in. So I cut 15,000 words out. It's about 105,000 words. And then they called me and said, well, you need to get rid of the owner's manual in the back. If you you pick up the book, in the back, there's an addendum that's called owner's manual. I consider this to be potentially the most important part of the book. Um, I'll read a piece from it. It begins much like an owner's manual from a car, but a little different. Dear Owner... Judging by the life you have chosen, you are a member of a special breed. By choosing to follow this manual, you are choosing to change your life for the better. Remember, you are unique, so you must follow these instructions according to your unique capabilities. Read this owner's manual very carefully, because the more you know... The, the more you know what needs to be done to be successful, the more successful you will be and the more pleasure you will experience. And then it starts breaking down every element that you can think of in terms of just the type of teaching that most of us don't get if we come from certain neighborhoods. Just the simple teaching about the purpose and value of education, how to go after it, how to find it. The simple purpose of your first job interview, how to go about it, how to dress, how to prepare for it. The simple information about how to... Assemble your own personal board of directors and have actually a team or a network of support. The simple value of how to actually do and write a budget, make copies of this and create your own budget, no matter who you are, where you're from. The simple value of creating a business plan. Uh, Most of these brothers and sisters that come out with a felony, it's extremely difficult to get a job, right? So they're going to have to be entrepreneurs. So they're going to have to know how to create a business plan. They're going to have to understand how to go out and raise money, how to be an apprentice, how to work for someone to learn a trade, learn to master something by volunteering to work that way. The simple idea of going through and creating your body, body mass index, what kind of foods to eat, high blood pressure, bag, you know, I know none of you eat that fried food, so I don't need to tell you. Um, the idea of, how to chronicle your exercise, the idea of how to limit your daily caloric intake, the idea of your health, the idea of investing, the idea of taking out insurance policies. The number one thing that causes personal bankruptcies in this country is personal medical. Right. So The owner's manual to me was essential. And then to show you how clueless they said to me, they said, well, no, just put it online. (laughs) If you're incarcerated, you can't get online. (laughs) So putting it online doesn't really help. So this book was not only a labor of love, it it was a fight. And obviously, I'm reliant on people to gift the book out of my own pocket. Even on my contract, they said that they had to to help pay for uh, web uh, uh, activities. I had to finance my own incarceratedbrother.com website. And you all are welcome to go there. It's not that fancy because I paid for it out of my own pocket. So it's not going to be really cool. But if you go to www.incarceratedbrother.com, the beautiful thing about it is it lists prisons state by state, not every single prison, obviously, but a number of prisons, state by state, federal and state penitentiaries, along with uh, many warden's names. And if folks decide during the holidays they want to gift the book into a certain institution, they can send it, they can buy the book on Amazon, send it to the warden and just say this book is meant to go into the prison library. If it happens to be a prison that doesn't accept hardcover books, they'll just rip the They'll tear the hardcover off, they'll cut it off, and put it in the prison library. If they can't have hardcover books, they'll just put it in. And it also details another 175 pages of resources uh, for folks who are coming out and staying in. I wanted to take all excuses off the table. I wanted to make it that I didn't want people to come up to me and say, Well, what can I do? I can direct them right to the website. You can do something. Today, I've Spoke in front of a, a, a 140 women who are incarcerated uh, in prison, another 20 young men uh, who who are facing felony charges of anywhere from five to 30 years, who are 16, 17 years old, and another 30 young men in Laurel, Maryland, uh, who are part of the DCYS system. I want to get into as many facilities as possible, and I need word of mouth to grow about this book and about the issue. I will tell you that this is the book that I've done that I'm by far most proud of, and the wonderful thing about it is that I have a number of contributors that I really Love. And if you know anything about any of my books, I'm never the expert. I'm just the person on the journey trying to figure it out. Uh, because I don't believe, one thing that frustrates me about a lot of nonfiction is that the nonfiction writer often tries to prove to you how smart he or she is rather than being helpful. And what I attempt to be is try to put it in language that's extremely accessible, but so the idea is to have very high minded concepts in a very accessible way. I talk about this concept very in very much detail, this idea of being active architects of our own life, the idea that we can build lives no matter who we are, whether we're incarcerated or not. We can build lives like architects build structures. But first got to start with the same methodology that architects use. In other words, extremely meticulous blueprints or plans. Most of us don't even do that. I'm talking about folks who aren't even incarcerated, right? Most of us keep our plans where? In our head. You'd never hire an architect if he said, oh, I got you covered. I got your plan right here. We ask for more specificity from an architect building a structure than we ask of ourselves in building our lives. And yet most young people, and this is where I get into trouble because I tell audiences like this, the reason why most young people actually get into trouble is because they're really replicating your behavior. They see us not living meticulously. They see us not taking risks, not planning, not not being entrepreneurs, not going for that. They see us sticking in dead-end jobs that we don't like. They see us actually caught with golden handcuffs. They see us not learning a new language, not going back to school when we know we should. They see us not doing the things that we intuitively know we should to be dynamic and live the bigger lives that we are meant to live, yet we acquiesce and live smaller and smaller and smaller lives. We get up tired in the morning and we live tired life days. And then we ask them, why you young person, why are you so sleepy and tired? Why don't you pay attention to school? And they sound just like us. I hate my job. I hate my boss. You ask a kid, I hate school. I hate my teachers. They're just a mirror image of your energy. And people say, Hill, how do you got so much energy? I got energy because I believe in physics. Physics tells us, one of the number one rules of physics is something is in stasis or immovable. The only way to move it is to what? Apply energy. And the only way to do that is to actually do something. Get up every morning and I write. I write. every day. Well, now I don't, because this is my last book, y'all. I'm tired. (laughs) But I'll open it up to questions. I know I didn't do much reading from the book. If y'all want me to read sections of the book, I'm happy to. Uh, If you have questions about the book and and how it's laid out, I'm happy to talk about that. I'm happy to talk about whatever y'all want to talk about. But I kind of wanted to lay the groundwork for you about what this book is and how much it means to me. And um. And we can go from there. I know we have some microphones. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And I just thank you guys for coming, coming out. Thank you so much. This means so much to me. Yes, sir.
2: Um, first of all, Mr. Harper, I want to thank you for penning this book and persevering. And also sharing with us that even at your level, that systemic racism will still rear its head. I guess you probably were dumbfounded when they said we're not going to publish this book. Twice. Yeah. And uh, I find that's astonishing. Um, I'm here, I teach a social justice theater and filmmaking program wow. at a Baltimore Inner City High School. I brought a couple of my students, two young men with me, Stand Up Devontae and Cartis. Devontae and I, we have a challenging relationship filled with profanity early mornings in terms of him making it to homeroom, but I decided to bring him. Um, I just want to ask, you share with me, because I have a brother who just recently came out of incarceration, an older brother, Um, and the most challenging thing for me is what I do every day with young people and people I'm not blood related to trying to help him through my art, is working with my own biological brother. Could you explain to me, as you dealt with a young man, how difficult it was and what helped you get through to that young brother? And perhaps it could help me with my older brother as he makes his journey back into society. Yes, great question.
1: First of all, thank you for for, for working with me. Thank you, too, for coming here. There's a lot of places you could be, not be here. Like he has a question, so you guys are in the acting program. Do you want to come up and do a scene? I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I won't put you on the spot. We could do a little improvisation. No, but couple things. Number one, the first thing I talk about this a lot in the book: fear. Now, fear is what stops most of us from actually taking action. And for me, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. All these fears we've inherited aren't real, and what stopped me or hurt me early on with working with the incarcerated brother was my fears about well what did I have to offer him I listened to the tape that people said that's erroneous that said well you're not from his circumstance so he's not gonna listen what you have to say completely wrong and false that type of tape makes us separate each other it's just like how race in many ways is that social fiction that we get how how different we are We are all so much more same than we are different, yet we're told from day one how different we are, so therefore we believe it. And that leads us to think, and that's why Hollywood says the black movies don't play overseas. Things like that. It's just false, right? And so for me, I had to get over my false evidence appearing real, my fear, and he had to get over his. The way his manifested was anger, He was like, F this, F that, screw this, screw that, right? Is that how he is? Okay. So all that is is fear. You're afraid of your own greatness. And so it's easier, it's easier to discount yourself and sabotage yourself before you even get there rather than actually getting to the place where the, chapter, I think it's chapter three, is called Losing is Learning. One of the greatest things I've learned is to seek out new and different ways to fail big. And to me, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. Go for it and attempt to fail. Because if you're not pushing up against failure all the time, that means you're actually not pushing up against your life. You're living in a much too safe comfort zone. And we weren't meant to live small, safe lives. We were meant to live big, dynamic lives. And for me, being vulnerable, I mean, it's your brother. You're going to have to be so vulnerable. Be nakedly vulnerable and say, you know what? I've messed up with you because clearly we've gotten to this place. There have been all these things that haven't worked. I don't have a great relationship with my brother. When my father died, we just... Started arguing, problems, etc. I'm still attempting to work on it. But it's the same thing. It's my fear, his fear, and his wife isn't so good either. Don't record that. Mr Harper, yes. We have this man as next. Yes. Um
3: First I'm I'm a product of the correctional system, starting at the juvenile from eleven years old. Graduating to the bigger jails at 15, and spending 25 years of my life in an in adult prison system. Went in when I could barely read and write. Educated myself. Educated other people to get GEDs. And immediately was identified as a troublemaker. Started writing proposals. Learned law. Became what is called a jailhouse lawyer inside of the prison. Changed a lot of conditions inside of the prison by writing officials at the top of headquarters and going into the court system. Became an author, created a writing organization, and finally became a teacher on a college level all while I was inside an institution. My, my, My interest is... Well, my question is part of what I do. Now, today, I'm a community activist. I help the youth. I help people who are in recovery and ex-offenders. I help people to get jobs, and I help people to write books. I am one of the people that you're talking about the end product of that owner's manual. I probably have already done a lot of the things you're talking about. Sounds like it. my concern is that there are so many people like myself who are now making tremendous contributions back to, to, to the community. And no one knows what we're doing. I would like to know if you would be interested in putting something together that would expose these kind of people and let society know that there are people that come out and are not threats, but rather helpers in the community. And I learned how to do all of this while I was
1: inside. Thank you for that. It, it, it sounds in many ways that all the things you, you, you've done are things and methodology and, and, and things I talk about in this book without question. So we thank you for that. You talk about, I'll, I'll, I'll hold you, though, to the same standard that I hold the you know young, young men who come up to me and talk about, yo, when I'm, when I'm working inside, they talk about when I get out, man, you got a job for me, you got this for me, you got that for me. The number one thing I hear is, can I get the hookup? And I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but I explained to them there's no such thing as a hookup. So what I would suggest is that if, for me, if you have a proposal that you've created about in what form you'd like to shine the light on these individuals, I am fully supportive of that idea, yet it's about the execution ultimately. And in my office... I get five to 15 proposals a week for reality shows, for this, for that, the other thing. And most of them, to be quite honest, I'm just going to be very honest, aren't that compelling. If you have a compelling way in on this issue and you have an idea, because at the end of the day, something that's just feel good, unfortunately, no one wants to fund that. We'd have to find a way to make sure we can get it funded and get it done. Um, or we could do something like I did with incarceratedbrother.com, you know, cobble it together with, with sweat and, you know, elbow grease. And people say, damn, Hill Harbor's got a jacked up website. But at least I made it, you know. And so there's a way to get the word out. I certainly could use social media and free media to let, you know, if we decide every week I highlight one person on my Twitter, we could do that. That's a free and easy way. But there's probably something more compelling that could be done and more interesting. And if you have an idea or proposal around that, I'm happy to look at it. Thank you, Mr. Harper,
3: the young lady in the red scarf is next. Hi.
4: Hi, how are you? Thank you for coming and and speaking with us tonight. Um, I am a social work therapist, and so I'm a big proponent, uh, big supporter of encouraging people to write to heal. And I love the way you started out with reading the letter, I think, by Brian. Yes. Um, my question to you is, have you, in the past, or do you plan to do any work with like, the writing programs that they offer for you know, those who are incarcerated, the writing programs that happen through the jails? Have you thought about doing any work from that level, or have you done that already?
1: Uh, done, it all, done it already. And one, one of the programs that I love um, is actually near here. And I think it should be replicated in more places. And it's in D.C. I was with them today. Uh, it's called Free Minds Book Club and Writing Workshop in D.C. D.C. Jails. And this is actually the poetry book, a book of poetry. It's called They Call Me 299-359. And this is a book of poetry from the individuals who participated in the program and it's fantastic. I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can go to any, any of these poems. I'm just, I just flipped to a random page Hard Times by Devontae, growing up growing up, mother on drugs, father in jail, grandma got high, blood pressure, all that waste waiting on me. A ruler can't even measure my pain. Be calm and stay patient. Everything will get better. That's what they told me, but nothing changed yet. I've been waiting since they told me, turned down to the streets to find love and joy, the pain turned to anger, and, and I became, quote, unquote, rude boy. Rude boy, boy, selfish boy, became my full name. I'm rude boy. You know? That's nice. Um, and this is, a, this is a book of po- poems and, and writing workshops. So, so these, these programs do exist, and I support them wholeheartedly. And also what you said, I also encourage the young men and women I work with to write letters like I do. And some letters they, you don't even send, but some of the letters can be healing. Because actually I do that. You know, I write someone I'm upset with or someone that I need to to forgive because a lot of this revolves around forgiveness. A lot of this anger comes out of our need to individually forgive people that have hurt us, abused us, and we've internalized that hurt and that pain and we need to forgive them. I don't care who you are. And unfortunately, in the African-American community, we somehow uh, stigmatize therapy and mental health work in so many ways, and, we, and even in the church, we stigmatize it as if you're, the pastor's the only person you go talk to, not a mental health therapist, and that hurts us because you need to work through. Uh, I, was, I was in the Twin, Twin Towers Jail in, in, in L.A., which has about 9,000 occupants, walking through the, the jail, and I was walking with the, the warden, and the warden said, did you know that this is California's largest mental health facility? Said really, he said, "Yeah, we have thirty-five hundred people on mental health meds. We have one hundred and fifty mental health practitioners, and we are the state mental health facility. And it's amazing that he's saying that to me in a straight face when he is a prison and a jail. But we've cut funding, and so where are these people ending up? They're ending up going from the streets to prison." And then we drug them up to keep them docile. All right, hold on. Go ahead. Yes, sir.
4: Hi, my name is Cartese, and I'm 15. And I want to know, how long did it take you to publish all this stuff?
1: All five of my books or just this book?
4: All of them, even the website and everything.
1: Okay. (laughs) From start to finish, okay, this book came out. Last, a week ago Tuesday, a week ago Tuesday, and so from a week ago Tuesday to the beginning, this, I started this about the actual book about two years ago, okay? Um, My other books, just depending, were a little quicker than this one because um, this one had been on my mind and my heart for a long time, and I just had to get it right. I had to get it right, real right. Um, and that's not to say my other books aren't right. But this one took more time and care. Um, I've published my first book in 2006. I started writing that book in about 2004. So that my first book I wrote in 2004, and I thought that was going to be my only book. It came out in 2006. So I thought I was only going to write one book called Letters to a Young Brother. That was it but other things came, other ideas. Thank you for that Mr. Harper, may please stand up? Hi.
5: You wrote so many wonderful, wonderful words, and they're inspiring. But despite that, I'm going to one of the quotes that you provided by Albert Camus, where he said, freedom is nothing but a chance to do better. And as I read that, um, it, it it struck me as completely antithetical to the thinking behind our prison system. And I'm wondering in all your work, how can we culturally switch to what Camus was saying in making people better?
1: There, there are so many things that we can do, but we all have to choose our different lanes. I'll run through just a few of them. Number one, I, was, I believe that most of you have money in banks that... Ex, that, 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 that Private prison corporations hold their money in. You are, by holding your money in these major banks, you are tacitly supporting private prisons. And then watch the incentives around private prisons. Private prisons, number one, are publicly traded on the stock market. How do they meet their profit margin and how do they increase their profit margin? By actually locking up more people. How do they also keep their profit margin? By decreasing the medical services and mental health services in the institution, as well as the training services, because they want to, one, they're incentivized to have high recidivism, because even if the person gets let out, they want them to come back. One of the, one of the young men that I work with, a CO that he worked with would come, and that CO means correctional officer, but there's no corrections going on in these institutions. Let's be very clear, but they're called corrections officer. Um, and I'm not saying all COs are bad. Don't get me wrong. All COs are not bad. It's a job that they do and, and many of them do an outstanding job. But this particular CEO would go up to this young person and say, I love that you're here because you give me job security. In fact, I love it when you mess up because I get overtime. And on the day he was released, the CEO went out of his way to walk up to him and say, I'm sure you will be back because I need to pay off my mortgage. So you have to remind yourself that I believe just like South Africa and the divestiture movement there, we have to insist that, our, that banks stop holding these companies' money. Okay, that's one thing that can be done. That's shining a light on the issue. Another thing, we keep electing politicians that quote-unquote say that they are tough on crime and they create these minimum sentencing guidelines. They create sentencing guidelines based off a baseball rule. What if the baseball rule was four strikes you're out or five strikes you're out? Instead, it's three strikes are out, right? As if that's good criminal justice policy. It's just a sound bite to get elected, but it's also taking away someone's life. Uh, I would much rather have politicians that are smart on crime than tough on crime. Yet we don't insist on that. We keep electing these people because they come and say, I locked up so many people. I got them. We're going to get more off the street. And we're in a country where Crime has been literally a flat line, but we keep locking up more and more and more and more and more and more people. And there's one through line to the people we're locking up. People think it's race. It's not. It's poverty. We lock up so many poor black folks, so many poor Latino folks, and so many poor white folks. Poverty is the number one common denominator of people that are in jail, not race. Another thing we could do is insist... Every time you go shop somewhere, do you ever ask the manager how many formerly incarcerated has he hired? How many formerly incarcerated are currently working at that grocery store that you go to? How many formerly incarcerated are working at the mall or the department store where you go? How many formerly incarcerated individuals are working at the bodega or at the coffee shop or at the bakery or at Starbucks? Ask the manager. And if they don't hire them, if they don't consider them, say you're going to take your business elsewhere. Another thing that we can do is what we call insist on moving the box. All these major corporations, one of the first things on their, the, the box that, that asks the question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? What we want to do is have them move it to the second interview. So if you, based on the person's qualifications and who they are, would you give them a second interview? If that's the answer, great. So you didn't ask them the question the first time. They get their second interview. At least you had to sit down and converse with them. Then you ask the question. If the question is then yes, then maybe they wash out. But at least they didn't wash out before they got a chance to actually sit down with you. So if we could get UPS, FedEx, Walmart, Target, all these major hirers to move the box, it would be transformative. And it's a very simple. It doesn't, doesn't require a government dollar. doesn't require more tax dollars. It just requires us to insist on them moving the box. Target is moving the box? Well, maybe I'll shop there this Christmas. <laughs> so obviously there are a number of things we can do. The other thing that sh- most people don't think of is there are prisons in your community. You can go volunteer. You can go. It's not like it's some place that you can't do something. You can donate a book. You can sign up to to sponsor a program inside the prison. If you have a great idea, I'm going to tell you a transformative idea. A guy named Chris Redlitz, who I'm working with now because I heard about his program. It is fantastic. He's a guy who started an organization called The Last Mile. The Last Mile. He is a Silicon Valley tech venture capitalist. Rich, white guy. For some reason, he got it in his head that he was going to start a program in San Quentin maximum security prison called The Last Mile, where he wanted to train because he wanted to train tech entrepreneurs. And the interesting thing about Silicon Valley is they don't care where a good idea came from. They don't care if you have a record or whatever. If you got a, if you, if you have the idea for the next Facebook, the next Twitter, they want it. And so he trains tech entrepreneurs about how to create a business plan, how to do all the work, and then they do a pitch to other, that he invites all his friends that are venture capitalists from Silicon Valley into San Quentin. They do a pitch in front of these VCs, and his placement rate for jobs as well as funding of ideas is, is, is a super high level. Because by the time they do this pitch, the program has gotten these brothers and sisters ready. He's just one person who had a good idea for a program. Any of us in here could create that same program here, 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 right around Baltimore. Similar program. Or, or reach out to him and say, hey, I heard about the last mile. I want to do it here in Baltimore City. It's just funding dependent just like most everything else. But those are, those are just examples. There's so many things you can do. Whatever your lane is, whatever your area of expertise is, there's a way to serve this problem. And people come at me and they say, Hill, hey, oh, you're talking about criminals. Why are we trying to help out criminals? What's interesting about this is that I am in no way justifying criminal behavior. I think that, that you know, most, most of the folks are locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. Anyway, but I in no way advocate or think it's okay for dealing poison in our communities. I hate drug dealers. I don't like it, right? But at the same time, the crime should fit the time. And for too many of our people, too many, and when I say our people, I mean everybody, right? Too many. Five grams powder cocaine, 12 to 14 years. You come out with no job skill. It's almost like a lifetime sentence because you're not going to get a legit job. You, you go in when you're 19. You come out when you're 31. Look at how much technology has changed over the last six years. Facebook is less than 10 years old. Twitter's less than 10 years old. Google's barely 10 years old, right? I mean, by the time you go in today, if you come out 12 years from now, the world will be different 12 years from now. You will be left behind and you'll be different because all of our data shows us that prisons breed criminality, not stop it. So, we can be much smarter, more transformative. And also, it's an apolitical issue that should cross party lines. If you're a Tea Party conservative, then you should like us reducing the size of this mass incarceration because it costs $70,000 a person, an inmate. So, you could be an ultra conservative in terms of your politics and support the same initiative as the super progressive on the left because they want, they value human rights initiatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Am I talking too fast? Yes. Well, oh, sir, somebody.
3: she has the, um, the lady in the green.
1: The lady in the green. But Mr. Harper, do you want to choose people? I mean, how would you like to do? Oh, whatever you guys want to do. Well, whatever you want to do. I'm, uh, I'm flexible. You're doing a great job. Thank you. So are you.
6: <laughs> um, yes, ma'am. Um, thank you again for coming, Brother Hill. Um, I'm with the other sister. I am a therapist as well and at the graduate level, but I do... Um, substance abuse counseling and in South Baltimore where all parties meet as far as nationality, white, black, Hispanic. And this book, and me perusing it, is food for the soul. And um, I do an event called Brothers Who Can Cook. And the last time I talked to you, when you were in at John Hopkins at an event at a school.
1: I told you I was a brother who couldn't cook. You
6: yeah, was a brother who couldn't cook. I can order really but, well. <laughs> but we just want you to serve. But the thing is is that the School of Social Work that I graduated from at Morgan State University um, would love to invite you to come and talk to our Social Work Department um, about this book because okay. what I'm going to do is um, share this with um, my alumni chapter. But more importantly, I use books like your book to teach and to do my groups. So normally they would want you to speak from the social work school of thought, and you know you're using cognitive behavior therapy and Gestalt and all that kind of stuff. But I use real stuff, and this is real. So and for you to have that com- the component that you have in the back that shares um, the roadmap or the O- owner's, owner's guide, manual the owner's yes. mind manual, um, and you talk about food, I'm just hoping that you'll look at the substance abuse population because that is just as pervasive in Baltimore. Yes. And I want to know, do you address it in the book?
1: Yes, we okay. talk about it. I, I, I comment it more from a, the mental health side. There's a mental health chapter and in and, and getting help. the Obviously, the substance abuse issue is so pervasive uh, that I couldn't do it justice in this um but at the same time seeking help for whatever the abuse because you got to remember that most women i I did a session with 140 women today the vast majority of those women full-blown prison were abused sexually physically mentally abused okay so there's a connection um so, so I appreciate and thank you for what you do being on the front lines. And, and so it's addressed, but obviously there's more work to be done. And let's talk later. If, I, if I'm able to come, I'm happy to, happy to come. Mr.
3: Harper, ma'am, will you please stand up?
5: Thank you so much for coming. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yes. Your book, uh, when I opened it up and read that letter from Byron, it was just heartbreaking. It just took me right away because I am first a mom, And a grandmom, and now a great grandmother, Mm. and um, my grandson has just been given a sentence of 18 years, and uh, he was coerced into doing um, selling drugs, which he was nonviolent. But they gave him first offender. He was a a graduate uh, from he's in California, and um, hold up
1: now. So so repeat that so people hear that. Hold up. First-time offender. Yes. He, he, he graduated from what?
5: From uh, L.A. school in California. Okay, so
1: like a vocational school or? or no, or he
5: was uh, in a High regular, school? High school. L.A. High? Yep. Okay. And he graduated with honors and all that. He was playing football. He was scouted. So he
1: got caught on a drug trafficking charge. Yep. Got caught with a certain amount. Yep. And probably got hit by some kind of minimum sentencing law. Yep. He's... 19, 18, 17,
5: 18,
1: 19? 24. 24. It's so he's going to come out months. at 42.
5: His life is ended.
1: It's not ended, but it's, 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 it's on pause damaged. for a second. Damaged. Um damaged. But, but he can still use the time. Yeah. I mean, clearly a great example of yeah. time use is right there. In fact, you all should connect so he can become a mentor to him. Because okay. he's going to need a mentor while he's inside. Yes. Um. That breaks my heart. Me too. Breaks my heart, and and we are a better country than that. We are, and we have to start holding ourselves accountable to this. And that's what broke my heart. It's like I'm tired of the Brian's, Briannas, and 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 and, and him. It's, it's we gotta catch him. We gotta catch him. We're losing too many. Yeah. So so. Whenever I can do to, to mentor, I hope that you, you get him this book. I'd like to sign a book for him and, yeah, and you can it. get it to him. And, and, uh, and I'm sorry for that. Sorry for that.
3: Time for one more question. Is that okay? Because
1: you've got what, to sign books or what do, do you, you want to do? Whatever you want to do. Okay. Uh, one more question is fine. Okay. It better be really good.
4: It is. Ma'am, please go uh, ahead. Oh, the pressure. Hi, my name is Judith. and. In your bio um, introduction, you talked about your education and where you graduated from. I work in a high school, and I am constantly asked about reading. Our students have high expectations of going on to higher education. But when you ask them about reading, none of them like to read. And constantly, each year, we're asked about books that our young African-American are looking for. Unfortunately, they're not asked by people who look like us. So they order a lot of books that mean absolutely nothing to our population. When you talked about some of our kids not being incarcerated, uh, we have kids who, who want to do the right things. But how can, where you are, not just with the incarcerated population. How can we as educators get books like that into our libraries? I'm amazed that I have kids who never pick up a book, but when I encourage to do a research project along with the book, and in the whole process, they'll say, well, I don't want to read. But then they'll come back and say, I read 10 pages last night. Those 10 pages come into 100. So it's no longer about the report anymore. It's about reading. And if we have that many African-American children who have access to a library that has millions of books, but nobody's reading them, and every year someone says, what book should we order? I go through Amazon. I want to know how we can get you involved in reading the books before the kids get to the incarceration process.
1: We, we, listen, it, it has to come from you. The folks local on the ground insisting. She just held up this book. Will you give it, will you give it to me for a second? No, watch this. Wow. This is the library's copy of Letters to a Young Brother. It's, it's clearly Young Brothers are reading. Look at it, it's all tattered. This is this is Letters Young Sister. Now, what's interesting about it, this book won the American Library Association Award for Best Book for Young Adults in 2007. So it's not like it was flying under the radar. But you're right. School districts, for whatever reason, don't necessarily order it unless individuals insist locally that they do. Now, what's wild about it is the, the book itself has pictures in it. And I put those pictures in for a reason, because I wanted to entice folks to read it, right? It's just a carrot. It was just my little reverse psychology strategy to say, ooh, oh, here's a picture of him and Jay-Z. This book must be good. Or there's him and Halle Berry. If Halle Berry likes him, I like him too, right? Um, but that's the only reason why those pictures are there. It's just the old okey-doke, right? It's the bait and switch. But, but watch this. I got the title of these letters series from a book by Rainier Maria Rilke, Called Letters to a Young Poet, about you know, Rilke was a poet from like 1885 to early 1900s in Germany. He was Germany's most famous poet. That book, for me, when I was younger, was so inspirational to me. But I knew that it's written in a way that newer generations—they don't care about Rilke and they don't care about the way it's written. And so many of those books that are considered the so-called "quote-unquote" classics. Stop judging them. In other words, at at their time, they were the contemporary thing. They're not that great for us anymore because kids don't want to read them. So don't force them down their necks anymore. Get them books that they want to read that are a little bit more contemporary, more interesting. Because once you hook them into reading, they'll start exploring other tentacles. But you can't say, read Hemingway because you're supposed to like it. It doesn't work that way. Give them something that they like that's a book that they can get into and be like, hmm, this is kind of cool. And then you start leading them down. So, okay, if you liked Hill Harbor's Letters to a Young Brother, maybe you'll like the Autobiography of Malcolm X. And then you get them to read that. And then they read the Autobiography of Malcolm X. It's like, ooh, if you like that, you want to read about Paul Robeson? Who's he? Oh, well, take a read and see. Ooh, you like that? Okay. Have you heard of Charles Dickens? hmm, maybe I like Charles Dickens now. But if you give me Charles Dickens first, I'm like, I don't want to read this. It's not interesting to me. So rather than judging the young person, I say go to where they live. And that's why I've attempted to create the books the way I've created them. Um, I attempt to talk about really high-minded concepts in an extremely accessible way because all these concepts that are in these books are very sophisticated ideas and concepts you're talking about you know I have in this book I had one of the most brilliant people I know is a Harvard professor named Dr. Rudolph Tanzi who's a Harvard neuroscientist that I believe I'm about to make a big prediction right now that I believe he and his associates will cure Alzheimer's within the next 10 to 15 years cure it Parkinson's cure it he's brilliant he wrote a book called super brain with Deepak Chopra the idea of how you can actually train your brain that most of us operate on a reptilian brain level but you can train to actually operate on a higher level by being conscious and being able to observe your brain and how it actually works and asking yourselves questions as you talk and speak and take action it is super high level neuroscience concepts but I talk about them in this book in an accessible way, right? So we can do the same thing with young people, right? Whether it's this book or something else. There's so, many good, there's so much good accessible stuff out there. You know? So it's librarian local. Here, it's local.
0: Uh, as soon as you started talking, uh, Miss Judith, our librarian, our teen librarian is here. Judith. Judith, no, I was saying you, Miss oh. Judith. Uh, our librarian just jumped up and said, I got you, OK? okay. <laughs> so she's got you and everything. And thank you. You have the best commercial for making books accessible. If you like Fifty Shades of Grey, try something else. You know, we got that, all that. So and we so, have one last comment oh, from well. a gentleman that's working here in Baltimore that just wanted to say something about one of the yes, programs well. he has.
7: Uh, once again, i like to thank, uh, thank you, Mr. Harper, for showing up. Um, and you said something that was very important. You spoke about reentry. Here in Baltimore City, uh, one of the, the primary reasons for recidivism is the barriers to employment. Uh, I work with men each and every day. Uh, their number one concern is employment. I cannot find a job. So, as a result of them not finding a job, what do they do? They go back. To what they know. They go back to the block because after all, the block is an income-producing mechanism. So we complain about the recidivism rate here in Baltimore City. We complain about the crime rate, public safety. But when it's time to hire Someone with a criminal record. The doors are shut. I can list. I can list on one hand the friendly, friendly corporations in the state of Maryland. So, if you have a job, if you know of a job, please give me a name, a contact name, and a number please. I work with a corporation called National Reentry here in Baltimore City. Uh, if you know someone, I'm in the process of developing a website, a website. Okay. but I do have a phone number. You can reach me at 443-205-2882, or you thank can speak with me
1: afterwards. Thank you for that. You. In, in, in that regard, one thing I am working on, because I believe social entrepreneurship One thing I'm working on, I'm working on a business idea that I have that is going to be developed specifically for creating entrepreneurs. Since I'm not in the tech space, I'm not going to do what Chris Redlitz was doing. I'm doing something else. Um... It's going to be wellness uh, around health and wellness, et cetera. But it's an idea of spe- specifically um, creating opportunities for formerly incarcerated and incarcerated individuals, and, and there will be more to come on that. Follow me on Twitter because I'll start tweeting about it when it happens. Please use social media because that is a way that you actually create a network and get support. So social media is a free way to do that. So please do that, you know, as long as you have a phone, is free. Um, well, technically. And I'd like to finish with this, though. I really believe in the power of reaffirming words and affirmations because I think that most of us, many of us walk around without people. We get bombarded by so much negative and what we can't do, oftentimes we get stuck. And so I like to do this. Will you guys just do, this is one of the affirmations that I do and just repeat it with me with a little bit of energy in your voice because I love affirmations I have things taped up on my dashboard of my car, positive words. You'll see throughout this book at the end of every letter, there's an affirmative word like this. Epiphany is right here Um, because I talk about it. I I, I, I try to get other individuals to get into because we get bombarded subconsciously with so much negative that you have to rewire or reprogram on the subconscious level the positive. Does that make sense? So say this with me. I will not (laughs) allow fear to stop me from making the choices that I know I should make. Instead, I will act with my heart, with courage, and in so doing, give others permission to do the same. Thank you guys so much. I look forward to meeting you up here.
0: Thank you, Mr. Harper. Mr. Harper will be signing books right behind the podium. Please join us.